This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. We're talking about what is changing in the industry and taking you straight to the front lines of what the future holds. If you're ready to grow your pest control or lawn care business, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we look at what is changing in the industry and we take you to the front lines to those that are driving those changes in the industry. As always, I'm your host, Donnie Shelton, owner of Triangle Home Services, which offer, well, I guess it's the, the parent company, Triangle Pest Control and Triangle Lawn, as well as the CEO of Comarch, which offers digital marketing and sales services for the home services industry. Again, focus on pest and lawn. And with me is my co-host, Mr. Dan Gordon. Dan, would you like to say hello and introduce our topic and guest for today? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. Dan Gordon, PCO Bookkeepers, M&A Specialists. Um, um, as everyone knows, we provide uh, fractionalized CFO services to the pest industry as well as exit planning services. And today, I am really excited about the guests that we have. I've worked with this gentleman uh, several times on some of the deals that we work on. His name is Mark Ruff. Um, uh, he's kind of an industry icon in in terms of um, uh, um, uh, attorneys who who work with the pest control industry. Um, he's been representing the needs of Florida pest control operators for many years, represents dozens of pest control companies, and has significant experience representing pest control companies in a number of areas, including defensive claims involving chemical exposure, wood destroying organism inspection reports, repair and retreatment contracts, non-compete agreements, and what I work on with him, uh, corporate mergers and acquisitions and more. So Mark uh, serves um, as counsel for the Florida Pest Management Association, as an advisor to the Certified Pest Control Operators Association of Florida, and as a member of the Fumigation Advisory Council's uh, Board of Directors. So uh, welcome, Mark. Well. I'm glad to be here. Some interesting topics I think we can cover today. Yeah, well, yeah. Mark and Dan, I just have to call us out at the beginning. I would love to have an attorney working for me with the last name of Ruff. You know what I'm saying? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Let's get down to business. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Let's get started by talking about termites. Um why don't you walk us through some issues you've seen in your practice and you know the importance of basically reporting conducive conditions in your annual termite renewal inspections um, and, and really what else a PMP can do to reduce potential liability when it comes to termites? Well, in my practice, the conducive conditions tends to be a hot topic and uh, many pest control companies overlook this issue and it really begins uh, at the inception of the contract with the consumer. Uh, a lot of times the salesman can be your worst enemy because they try to sign up uh, accounts that they really shouldn't be signing up. And, you know, that's how they make their money. But what they end up doing is they sign up accounts, but they do not tell the homeowner about the conducive conditions that could affect their warranty or, uh, quite frankly, affect uh, the value of their home. And the reporting of conducive conditions really begins at that time. Now, a lot of folks, they always think, well, I have to report conducive conditions at the annual renewal inspection, but that's not true. Um, it begins at the inception of the contract. And in Florida, anyway, 
um, we have a uh, administrative statute, 5E14105 sub 8, um, that bars a pest control company from asserting an exclusion under their contract if they don't alert the homeowner to a conducive condition in writing. And quite frankly, if they knew about it and renewed the contract with a known conducive condition, they essentially own the uh, own the uh, own the damage, Re regardless whether it's a a repair and retreat or a retreat only. And conducive conditions are is a huge issue here in the state. I think a lot of companies overlook that. I was going to say, you know, it's interesting, um, and, and I just want to recap. It, it sounds like the, the the main thing here is that folks really need to make sure that when they sell the contract, that they list as many conducive conditions as possible. Because I know with with Triangle, you know, back in the day, and it's gotten a little bit better. Once they kind of go on the renewal, there's not a whole lot in writing. It's just like, yep, we did the inspection, didn't see any termites, move on, and and the conducive condition can easily be overlooked. And I think what I just heard you say is that unless it's in writing and you pull it back, if there is damage as a result of conducive conditions, now you own it unless the homeowner signed off knowing about the conducive condition. Is that is that a good way to say that? That's correct. And, you know, in Florida anyway, um, you have to leave a written report of what your what you found during your annual renewal inspections. And again, but let's think about it from from the standpoint of, of revenue um, and the money that a pest control company can make, you know, you don't want to have to go out and retreat a structure numerous times because of a conducive condition. So you want to make the homeowner your ally and, and make that homeowner take uh, responsibility for the conditions around their house. And by putting them on notice, giving them written notice and forcing them to fix these conditions, you're saving yourself money because you're not having to spend the overhead to go out there and retreat and, and inspect multiple times. So it sounds to me like uh, what you're saying is that your salespeople need to be trained properly on doing a proper inspection as opposed to just going for the sale. That's absolutely correct. I, I, if I, I can break lie. it down. Hey, hang on. There's training and then there's incentives, okay? Right. That's correct. <laughs> it is changed behavior. Um, but, but, but here's an interesting one. How does that affect bundled services? So you've got, over the past several years, it's become extremely popular. So, so meaning that when you bundle a general pest control with, you know, bait stations that are installed for, quote, unquote, termite monitoring, what, if any, are the issues with these types of service agreements? Well, the, the, uh, at least with regard to Florida, uh, anytime you have a wood destroying organism uh, agreement uh, with a consumer, you have to follow certain guidelines. And a lot of times pest control companies, uh, they try to merge a general household pest control agreement in with their termite contracts or their, you know, their dry wood contracts. And what ends up happening is they make their contracts illegal because now they're putting too much information in the contract and everybody's trying to condense it down to one page or a page and a half. And they have a contract that's not, uh, that's not legal. And in Florida, a lot of the attorneys that are actually suing pest control companies are looking to make sure that those contracts comport with Florida law. And if they don't, well, there's been some uh, court decisions out there that indicate that if you're, uh, contract doesn't comport with Florida law, then you can't apply your exclusions. 
So it, it's something that you have to be careful when you start bundling services as far as the contract itself goes. Now, the other thing that pops up in this industry is whether the individual you're sending out there to um, do the service is qualified in category. Now, a technician, at least in Florida, um, has to have 40 hours of training in the uh, area of pest control in which he's practicing. So if you send a technician out to do GHP service and he's only qualified in GHP and he's out there checking the bait stations, well, that's illegal. And you can't do the reporting because he doesn't have the training. So when you're doing bundled services, uh, you've got to be careful to make sure that you've got properly trained people who are going to perform both services at the same time. You know, that's that's the way that they try and to we're licensed in each category. Exactly. Um, and obviously, the licensee has to be licensed and have a certified operator in, in, in that category. But to make sure the technicians that are going out there and performing the GHP service and or the termite services is also has that 40 hours of training. And in Florida, uh, if you're going to do annual renewal inspections uh, in, in conjunction with this bundled service, they have to have the 13645 designation on their ID card. So I I want to I want to talk through a little bit of this here, and and I always know that especially when it comes to legalese, you know, it's always in the definitions. And so it, when you use, like let's just say you offer termite monitoring, I can envision someone saying, well. I'm not really doing termite control. I'm not I'm not guaranteeing termite control. I'm not guaranteeing termites are not going to be on your home. I'm only going to monitor for them. Does that still in some way some form subject you to liability with termites if you're only monitoring or is it more of like if you put a termite label anywhere in that contract or any now all of a sudden you're picking up all the liability of of I don't want to say termite damage, but, you know, obviously there will be an event of some sort. So just curious on that. Well, when you use the term uh, termite monitoring, you know, I'm, I take that as a station that's there just to design, uh, is designed specifically to tell you whether there are termites in the area, not whether you actually have some type of um, growth inhibitor uh, in, in, the, in the service. Anytime. Any time that you have a monitor in place and you're you're there for the inspection of termites, you have to be you have to be um, trained in category. So again, you can't use a GHP technician to go out there and monitor for termites because that individual does not have the requisite training to do that. And then I'm assuming would you have the same pitfalls as far as contracts if you were quote unquote just monitoring versus offering some sort of control or is there is there a differentiation there you think or is it kind of the same it's the same whether you're monitoring or you're you're attempting to control uh an infestation uh it, it's the same the qualifications are the same still falls under so that, the still falls under the termite category and and the technicians out there um, still have to be supervised and trained in category so that that kind of lead back to the salesperson should the salesperson be uh, licensed in in category absolutely if you have to be trained well license license belongs to the licensee that that's the owner of the company mm -hmm. in florida the certified operator is the supervisor and the technicians are id card holders so tip Many, many times the salespeople may not be a certified operator. They may only have an ID card. 
but if they're selling services in, in, in this state or in many states, um, they have to be qualified in category. For example, a salesman who um, is not uh, trained in uh, fumigation category can't sell fumigation uh, because they're, they're not qualified, nor can a salesman who's not qualified or trained in GHB sell GHB. So you have to be very careful because to sell pest control, at least in the state of Florida, you have to be trained or qualified in category to sell. Otherwise, it's illegal. You know, there are companies that are out there um, that are using 1099 employees to sell pest control. And uh, quite frankly, we're finding out that many of those uh, people out there selling uh, pest control right, with 1099 employees, those employees do not have, or excuse me, subcontractors do not have the requisite um, qualifications to sell. So I, I think just to clarify here for our listeners, I, you know, I think to take home for me and, and a lot of them, or especially our pest control termite folks is if you, or if you're doing these combined services, probably should have an attorney take a look at your contract in your state, sure, in your yeah. state. Yeah. Making yeah. sure that you don't, you're not leaving anything, any holes in, and you're not trying to jam too much and that you don't, are you know, you're not breaking any, any state laws. And I guess the other part of that is make sure that you have some sort of system in place that you confirm that anyone's going out. And if the word termite comes out of their mouth, then they need to have training. <laughs> you need to have documentation to train. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and every state, uh, I represent clients who are multi-state, uh, you know, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, a lot of these uh, states have their own requirements. Uh, and, your contracts are illegal and you can face regulatory liability if you're issuing contracts uh, in multiple states. And, and a lot of clients are, they screw this up because you know, they're in three different states and they try to use one contract across all three states. And it's very difficult to incorporate all the terms from, from three different states onto one contract. So you're absolutely right. No matter what jurisdiction you're in, you, you need to have an attorney who is uh, who is experienced in pest control and pest control regulation to look at your contracts before you start issuing them. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears here for a moment. Now, let's start talking about, I, I know in, in Triangle and, and most all pest control companies that I'm aware of and most law as well, typically there are non-competition, non-solicitation agreements um, and in place, or they try to become in place. I, I just want to take a moment and spend some time on this topic because I know in the case of Triangle, and, and I can't say too much here, we, we use those, but it's not a hill I'm willing to die on either, right? I've, I've never had a case where I went out and enforced it or, you know, really helped someone held their feet to the fire over it, so long as they're not like taking our customers. And I've never had someone who has left that has tried to do that. Um, but I know this is a big deal for a lot of folks. And so just want to get your thoughts on these non-competition, non-solicitation agreements. And then just, you know, if you're going to use one, what are some things you need to think about? Well, that's an interesting topic because, as you know, um, President Biden is, is attempting to curtail these non-compete uh, agreements throughout the country. I think in this industry, it's critical that they exist, um, especially for for mergers and acquisition purposes. And if you stop and think about it, why would a buyer want to buy a company 
uh, when the employees are not under uh, at least non-solicitation agreements uh, and non-competition agreements because in the mergers and acquisition field um, if those employees leave because they don't like the buyer well then what's going to happen you're going to lose customers and the buyers um, you know, they, they want to be able to protect that that investment and quite frankly, the seller wants to protect the, in the, the sale of the company because many times they're under holdbacks. And if the employees flee, then uh, you know the clients are going to leave, and then the holdback is affected. So I think they're I think they're important. I think they need to stay in this industry. Um, a lot of companies uh, put a lot of training and time and, into making good employees a lot of a lot of employers spend the money to train their id card holders to certified operator status um, and they make them into supervisors and after spending all that time then they leave and go to another company one thing that in florida and we do my firm does a lot of this uh, type of litigation on restricted covenants and and they are they are very expensive suits um, you can you in the case of a manager to leave, and you could probably spend forty thousand dollars trying to enforce a restricted covenant. And a lot of times, um, you know, it, it's the development of evidence and, uh, as to whether uh, the restricted covenant has in fact been violated. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, call me up as soon as somebody leaves and say, send them out a letter telling them, you know, they're in violation. Well, you know, there are hurdles you have to go through, and there are proof problems that you have to overcome in order to demonstrate that, you know, they are actually competing against you or they are actually taking your customers or whether the loss of customers is just normal attrition. So do you like to send out um, a uh, reminder or as a friend of mine calls it a nasty gram just to remind them of their obligations as they leave? Um, not, you know, not accusing them of anything, but just, you know, laying the, the rules down. Well, I think so. I think it. I think that works. But I think the better um, the better procedure is to have a HR policy in place that when you have a have a uh, an employee that's leaving, at least even either either on their exit interview or when they come to pick up their final check, that you give them a copy of their non compete agreement or and and let them remind them that you know this is what I'm going to be watching and and I'm going to I tend to enforce this. A lot of my clients, they have them sign a document that they were given their non-compete, and it reminds them that. Um, something that happens also uh, in this industry a lot is is um, employers, and and you know right now in at least in the Florida market, uh, it's difficult to find uh, employees right now. I mean, there are incentives uh, that the government has that actually is keeping uh, a lot of our workforce away. <laughs> Let's not go and, down that uh, track. Oh, that deserves um, <laughs> But and I can't tell you, I cannot tell you how many calls I get a week where, you know, somebody says, hey, I want to I hire this guy. And what are the odds that, you know, this company is going to enforce its, you know, non-compete or its non-solicitation agreement? Um, so it, it's out there. It's happening a lot. Um, I do send out those nasty letters, uh, just reminding them that you know we will be watching. Uh, I probably have five or six of these cases going right now where there's active violations. Um, you know we're having to file for injunctive relief to stop them from soliciting clients and 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 taking customers away. But at least in in the mergers and acquisition field. Uh, I think it's critical that any any buyer uh, make sure that um, all the uh, 
employees are under a non-compete or non-solicitation agreement. And quite frankly, that it's assignable. Uh, that is a key issue in, in M&A is that, that you need in many jurisdictions an assignable non-compete and that language has to be there. And that uh, is critical too because uh, you know the time to fix that is not during due diligence. The time to fix that problem is before you decide to sell your, your you know, go out there and market your business. So That's one of the first things that we see uh, when we get into uh, M&A is, uh, you know, that's one of the first questions. Do you have um, non-competes and that could affect purchase price or even the saleability of your company. So we definitely see that, but, uh, I've heard from some other attorneys just to give it more teeth, um, to pay an employee to sign that when they join the company, like a little bonus. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a, a good practice? Uh, what do you think? Well, the, Obligation to, to provide consideration for the agreement varies between jurisdictions. It depends on, on what state you're in. Uh, in Florida, the, the fact that um, I'm offering you employment or offering you continued employment is, is sufficient consideration. Uh, so it, it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And, and again, um, you know, you may have to have an attorney uh, in the state that you're practicing in take a look at your agreement to determine whether that's necessary or not. Yeah. And, you know, just bringing this back around, if you, because you said something there, I just want to make sure that folks are, at least our listeners have caught on to, if you have non-competes in place and they are not assignable, when you go to an M&A transaction, are, are they, are they even, and this is probably for both you, Mark and Dan, are they valuable? Or, I mean, is it is it even a non-compete at that point if they're not assignable? Well, again, it, it depends on the uh, jurisdiction you're in. There are some jurisdictions where they're freely assignable, uh, but uh, in their other jurisdictions, you know, such as Florida, where they're not. Uh, so you you need to make sure that that assignability is there uh, before you, uh, you know, put your business on on uh, up for sale. And it's it's like it's a preparation issue more than anything yeah. else. So day one on transition after you sell your company, um, most buyers won't even let a technician go out um, until he signs the new one for um, you know the the, the buyer. So it, it, it's a big deal. Okay, and and that was really my question is is like you know if you're like hey I'm really looking to sell here or I, I'm I'm you know, I'm interested in in exiting. And you don't have these in place. And I agree with you, Mark, the time to do it is not doing, not during due diligence. Maybe just getting something that explicitly says, okay, these are assignable. And this at least that's one less issue you can. We, we, we basically, we, we had a situation where uh, we had a, a seller who didn't have the non-competes. And so how do you all of a sudden just ask everybody to sign this or are you telegraphing the sale of your company? And the answer is yes. I mean, why all of a sudden, you know, I've been working here for five years and now you want to sign this thing. It's, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, if you can get it then, you know, great, but um, you, you definitely um, want to be doing it uh, earlier rather than later. So on the, on the, the general topic of, of labor, because obviously this is a, a labor issue. Uh, Mark, do you get involved in any other type of labor issues as they relate to the pest control industry at all? We do. Um, 
we we see a lot of um, issues having to do uh, with uh, paying. Uh, the the biggest um, issue that we see is making sure that employees are paid correctly uh, when they are on commissions, and we see that quite often where where uh, where employers don't understand what the minimum requirements are under federal law for paying employees. The other thing we see is, is harassment suits. Um, we see issues where, um, you know, in this industry, uh, we still have those individuals that uh, are pretty touchy-feely with their employees. And, you know, it, sometimes that uh, it's meaningless. I mean, they're, they're just trying to be nice, but, you know, putting their hands on people and, the way sometimes they joke around and talk to people sometimes uh, doesn't work out right, and um, and then these lawsuits <laughs> pop up. Yeah, you know, and but that brings up an issue too, um, and 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 it really is a cost issue. But most companies should have EPLI insurance, you know, for employee issues and payment right. issues. If you're, if you're can, I mean, can you expand that? Can you expand that just a bit so our listeners know it? Because I agree with you 100%. Absolutely, everybody should have that. Well, yeah. EPLI insurance is is employer liability insurance, and it covers issues um, sometimes having to deal with uh, wage and hour issues, has to do with uh, harassment suits, uh, and and it's there to protect the company. It is it is somewhat expensive. Uh, I've seen in 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 the recent past, but. Uh, I think that if you are a decent-sized company and you can afford it, I think you need to have it. Uh, we recently uh, had a client that, that had a had an issue, and uh, with a uh, uh, with a uh, young lady who didn't believe uh, that she was being treated correctly as far as uh, some workers' comp issues and uh, you know, some harassment issues, and EPLI stepped in and, and took care of it for the employer. And those suits can be very expensive. So if you can afford it, uh, I think you should call your insurance agent and see what it would cost to have EPLI insurance on your company. And, and if you can't afford it or you can afford something, you can get higher deductible policies, but you should have something in place. And I would also just add to that, if you're in an area where I mean, so I operate in North Carolina and a couple other states, and it is very employee friendly and not very employer friendly. And so I, I guess the point I'm making out of that is that if you live in that that kind of state or area, it's even more essential and critical that you that you have that insurance. Um, but that's uh, yeah. I, I, and so just real quick and. and I'm going to ask you to go out on a little bit of a limb here, Mark, but just are there some basic things that, you know, owners can do to kind of keep themselves clean of that stuff? I mean, obviously you talked about the touchy feely and, and trust me, I could just have a heyday with that. I'm, I mean, I've got stories and stories I've heard, but just some basic things like, hey, here's some things. Don't do this. Right. And, and if, if you're this kind of person, then probably not a good idea. Just some general, <laughs> some general advice. Well, I think. I think it. I think it really starts with um, having uh, good uh, HR practices in place uh, on your hiring. You know, we had a lawsuit uh, where a young lady came in to as a CSR, a consumer uh, service, uh, and during the interview, uh, the owner of the company um, asked her out on a date. Oh and gosh. So, <laughs> 
so in her mind, uh, she felt that, you know, she was forced to go out on the date in order to get employment. And these, you know, it may have to the owner, it seemed an innocuous thing, but to the young lady, she felt that she was being pressured. So these are things that, you know, uh, you, you have to have a protocol in place. You have to have a hiring and firing practices in place. You know, you have to understand how to pay folks. And it's just a matter of, of sitting down. And there are a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of information on the internet. There's, it's worth the time to sit down with a labor law attorney and, you know, they, they can put some handbooks together for you, but you should have those so that you don't face those types of mistakes. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny when you talk to the client and, you know, my, my thing is, what were you thinking when you did that? And he's like, well, you know, I was attracted to her. Well, that's great. But, you know, you got to stop. And, you know, <laughs> wonderful. But you you got to look at it from her perspective. OK, right. you, know, you can't be doing that stuff. Right. You know. Oh, gosh. And just a reminder to our listeners, you know, we did have Gene Seawright on and um and I don't know why, I mean, but I know at Triangle, we've used her for, for some of this that, that Mark's talking about. And, and I agree with him. You, you also need to follow up someone in your state, but absolutely essential to have in, in place. Yeah. So you, you think things are common sense and I don't know, like that. Like Sometimes they're not. Yeah, they're not. They're not. So. Hey, so let's move on to mergers and acquisitions. And, um, you know, obviously when you uh, are looking to sell your company, you uh, have a team of of, of um, advisors, and um, you know the interplay between you know we obviously have a you know we're we're advisors brokers. Um, you have an attorney, you have a CPA, and um, in your opinion, how should this look? But obviously, a little self-serving here. But uh, in deals that you and I have worked on, um, describe how um, a broker who understands taxes and accounting, how can that result in a better, more lucrative deal for the seller or make the deal flow go uh, a little better? Is, is that something, um, I mean, obviously you and I have worked together. What, uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thought my thoughts on that is, that, you know, you have an advantage, you know, I've, I've done numerous deals and, you know, it sort of works for you um, because, you, you're filling two hats at the same time. Uh, many times I get into these transactions and there's a lot of tax questions and you know, we have to go find the CPA or the CPA doesn't understand the issue uh, or the, you know, the CPA isn't familiar with industry issues. So, you know, it really, it, it's a pleasure to work with you from the standpoint that, that I get two hats. I can go and go to you and say, look, I'm having an issue with this transaction. I need you to negotiate this issue for me. Or I can go to you and I can say, you know, here's what the issue is. And is there tax ramifications that you need to discuss with the client? It's it actually works and it makes the transaction go a lot smoother it, to have all the hats at the table at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we see it all the time with, uh, you know, uh, outside CPAs and a lot of times um, a lot of these, especially in smaller deals, the CPA only meets with the uh owner maybe once a year so they're not integrally involved in their business and so sometimes they uh, you know really don't understand the issues or really have to drill down but um, yeah I mean I, th I find that it's very important to have the the, the team working together the, the one thing I'll add to this too is and and 
since we're having this big love fest here, I'm going to give you a little bit here, Mark. And, and I, it, it, with, <laughs> is, you know, one of the things that I have seen, and you know, we've done several deal, deals at Triangle, is when you use folks who don't either A, understand the industry or don't know the big picture, it really screws up a deal in the end, right? It's like everyone does all this work. You kind of heading down this path and then you get right to, you know, a week out, two weeks out from closing and the whole thing just falls apart, right? Because there's issues or things that had it been talked about up front or someone had experience, right? They could have negotiated that well long before, you know, you, you went down this road. And I've, I've seen that on several deals that, you know, you get an attorney who doesn't know the industry. They're adding all kinds of crazy what ifs to the contract. All of a sudden, now all the goodwill between the buyer and the seller starts, you know, eroding. And then in the end, no one trusts anyone and everyone's pissed off and then boom, deal is done. So uh, just for our listeners, I would just say, yes, you need to understand, you know, get as much information as you can up front. And then two, if you're going to assemble a team, assemble people who know what's going on in the industry. <laughs> um, it's really important. Well, it is. Uh, you know, there's a cost savings, you know, attorneys are actually paid, you know, uh, CPAs are paid. And you don't want to have to hire people who have to learn the industry before they can give you an opinion. Uh, you know, I've, attorneys are notorious for uh, trying to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And that costs the client a lot of money if you hire somebody who doesn't understand the industry or understand the parameters, especially when you work with multiple buyers. Everybody, each of those buyers have their different proclivities. And, you know, having uh, experts or consultants that understand that, to understand where the thresholds are with each, each individual buyer is critical and saves you money. Because if you have an inexperienced individual in there, they're learning as the deal is progressing rather than have somebody that has the experience to say, oh, here's, here's how this is handled. Uh, whereas if you have somebody who doesn't have the experience, they're going back to you and saying, now, what does WDO mean? How does that, what does that mean? Or what is a prepaid account? Or how does that work? And, and you're sitting there teaching your lawyer or you're teaching your CPA, uh, or in some circumstances, you have outside brokers who, who just happen to get a pest control company for sale who don't even understand the industry or what the value is. So it, it, it is critical that you know, Donnie, that, that you use people, whoever you use, that, that have the industry experience and the relationships. You know, that's key, yeah. too, uh, in, in this industry. You know, relationships are very, very important. You know, uh, whether whoever this, the buyer is, you have to have that relationship so that when you make a statement to, to, to the buyer, the buyer says, OK, look, I've dealt with, you know, I've dealt with Dan, I've dealt with Mark. You know, these guys, they tell it the way it is. I don't have to second guess them. That 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 type of relationship is critical to your deal. I think uh, one one uh, attorney that we dealt with, um, which was kind of interesting. This is intuitive to everybody in the industry. But what is a skip and what is a cancel? And when you have these attrition clauses, those two terms are extremely important. How do you define them? Right. Uh, it, it, you know, it's very obvious to us, but sometimes yeah. not so obvious yeah. to people yeah. who, who aren't doing that. You know? Hey, 
Hey, someone that's been skipped six times is not a cancel, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, well, you know, we'll see what happens if they pay, right? So, um, all right. Well, hey, we're, we're running, we're getting close to the end here. We, we're almost running out of time. I do want to, I want to jump in one more topic here because I think this is really important, especially since we're on the topic of MA and just making sure you assemble a really good team. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of is, is guys or girls or whoever wants to get out and they're ready to sell and you know they get these purchase agreements and they're like yep whatever needs to do to do the deal and they don't really understand you know what they're representing what they're warranting and what their indemnification obligations are in acquisition and so mark obviously i know and dan both of you guys spend a lot of time i mean these are the devil these are the devil details here that you really got to pay attention to what do you guys feel like, and I'll just start with you, Mark, that a PMP really needs to understand about these representations that they're making, warranties, and, and you know what they're basically saying, hey, I'm going to be identified of if it's part of the acquisition? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. You know, the representations and warranties and the indemnity section of any purchase agreement, whether it's a stock purchase agreement or whether it's an asset purchase agreement, are probably the most critical terms. And you're absolutely right. Most of the most of the sellers, they focus on the payment. They focus on how much I'm getting, how much, you know, what's the breakdown on that? Well, you know, what the that section of the agreement gives you, the re warrant, the reps and warranties indemnity section takes away. And you can't get focused on you can't get focused on 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 the money so much as is what is it going to, you know. What is my obligations here? One of the things that, that um, sellers have a hard time understanding is that representation warranties are, are, are statements that are made by the seller as to the quality and integrity of the business. And it, 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 they deal with, with the financials, payment of taxes, regulatory compliance, litigation claims, things of that nature. And you know, the, the buyers, they want to rely on that, that the company is what you say it is. And a lot of times the, the, uh, the seller will say, well, look, I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether I'm always in regulatory compliance. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, we'll sit there and argue, like, to his knowledge, you know, he's in compliance and they don't want to hear that. You know, they're saying, look, I'm paying you millions of dollars. Or I'm paying you wherever I'm paying you for your company. Uh, you've got to tell me that you're in compliance. And there are, you know, owners don't understand that uh, because there's good money coming across the table. They want to be assured that what they're buying is, is a good company. And that's where the reps and warranties come in. And those reps and warranties, the liability for what you're stating in those reps and warranties are backed up by an indemnity provision that says that, hey, if I didn't represent this company correctly, uh, then I'm going to indemnify you for any losses, Mr. Seller, that, that you experience as a result of my false statements. And the other, the other thing the sellers typically don't understand, the seller being the company, but then you have the owners, is that the buyers want to make sure that the owners are jointly and severally liable for those representations. And you say, well, look, I'm selling my company. Why am I responsible as a shareholder to, 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 to the seller? Well, because what happens? The company sold, the money crosses into, this, into the owner's hands. The company is essentially a, a, an empty shell and 
the owners laying on the beach in the Bahamas with all the money. So that's why they try to tie the, uh, the owner to the indemnification agreement so that that money doesn't disappear and there's a pocket there that they can recover for any losses uh, as a result of a uh, negligently made or intentionally made uh, false warranty. So that, that that's interesting stuff. So uh, one of the things that uh, one of the reps and warranties that you make or that, that a lot of um, buyers try to have you make is that they're going to get a certain amount of business. And so they, they do that with holdbacks and earnouts. Sometimes we're able to negotiate those out so that there are no holdbacks or no attrition clauses. But sometimes you do it at the expense of purchase price. What uh, is that a good idea? What you know, if, if, if you had your druthers, would you want an attrition clause or would you take a little bit less money not to have an attrition clause? I think that really, I really think that that depends on the quality of the business. Now, again, I, I, we, we talked earlier about staying in your own lanes. All right. Yes, there, my job is to explain the legal ramifications of what happens here. If there's a negotiation issue that has to come out of that, I'm going to come to Dan and I'm going to say, Dan, you need to go to the seller or excuse me, the buyer and see what we can do about fixing that. That's your job. Okay. My yeah. job is to explain uh, to the, to the client, you know, what are the ramifications of this? How could it affect you? And then you and I work together to sit there and say, okay, what do, what do we think? Looking at the liability of the company, whether a holdback is, is, in, is in the interest. And again, that goes to the quality of the company. You go back and look at the attrition rates. You go back and look at the quality of the employees, all sorts of things um, to make that, that decision. What I think is interesting, Dan, and I think is a question for you is, uh, you know, what do you think about earnouts? You know, because that's not guaranteed money. You know, what do you think about that? I think on smaller deals, what it does is it provides a lot of protection for the buyer. Um, and it almost takes the due diligence process out of play. Or if you can't, you know, a, a lot of times these mom and pop businesses are, um, you know, that, that they're administratively, they're probably not up to snuff. And so when a buyer comes in and says, I want to do due diligence and gives them this big long list of things, it scares off the seller. And if I'm able to say, well, listen, we're just going to do an earn out, meaning that we're going to do a percentage of revenue that comes in, uh, you're going to get paid that for a certain period of time. The due diligence doesn't matter as much, or the financial due diligence doesn't as matter as much. Obviously, legal due diligence does, but um, you know, in certain cases, it's appropriate. Um, I don't like it on larger deals, though. I, I was going to say, I was, I'm not a CPA, and I'm certainly not an attorney. But as a business owner, I will tell you, I'm not a fan of earnouts. And and Dan makes a great point. I think on smaller deals, they make total sense, but on a big deal. The thing I don't like about earnouts are you lose control. So if the company, if the if the buyer are a bunch of retards, I mean they're just like they're screwing up everything left and right, and you have basically no control and they start running the company into the ground, well, there you go. You're watching a lot of the value that you had in the business built before. You're watching someone else just take it and throw it out the window. That's why I don't like them on the bigger deals. Much like you also have saying. that though on the attrition clause, right? You sell it to a big company and they don't treat your customers right. Um, yep. 
you're you're going to get dinged on the attrition clause too. But um, but but you're right. It, it, you know, it's got to be a good fit when you have buyer and seller. No, nobody wants to buy a company to to, to destroy it, and nobody wants to sell a company that's going to get destroyed and that their uh, their their um, payout is going to be affected. So. Yeah. And you know, and, and you know, on these uh, on on these issues too, you have to remember from a from a, a buyer's perspective, they have to be careful with that. And they have to be careful with how they apply those holdbacks and those earnouts because they don't want to they don't want a bad reputation in the industry. You know, the, we have a very small industry. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been in this industry for 26 years, and I will tell you that that I run into people all the time. It, it is very very small. You know, you're at the association, uh, you're you're at that uh, pest control association meeting now, and a lot of my clients are there and have told me that you're there. So and I'm here in Florida, and I know where you are. You know, because my clients are telling uh -huh. me where you are. So, you know, that, that, so it's a small industry, and and buyers don't want a bad reputation. So buyers will do what they can, you know, to protect that. They don't want to have to. Uh, enforce the the hold back unless there's some intentional issue you know going on but they don't want that reputation because it'll go through the industry like fire like he is a bad buyer don't do business with him so right i think there's yeah. a i think i think on both sides of the transaction i think there's um, some impetus to 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 be fair to be fair sure yeah well mark this has been great and it has absolutely been awesome um and you know we're, we're going to close out here, but before we go, if someone wants to consult with you or they want to get some advice from you, and 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 you know just maybe have them look at their you know, have you look at their contracts or or whatever, what is the best way they can reach out to you? How can they reach out to you? Well, I think the best way they can reach out to me is just um, contact me at my email address. Uh, my email address is mark m a r k at mhrlaw.com, market mhrlaw.com. Monitor my email and if you have a question, you know, if I, if I can answer it. Uh, if I don't know what's going on in your jurisdiction, I'll tell you that. But you know, if there's some basic questions uh, that I can answer, I'm happy to do that. And for our listeners, we will we will push uh, Mark's website uh, onto the show notes as well, so you have access to that. And so, Dan, anything else? Any parting thoughts here before we close up? No, I think this was outstanding, very uh, educational, and uh, really appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, uh, very enlightening. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. I would agree. Thanks again, Mark. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please remember to subscribe and like our podcast. And with that, we're signing off. We'll see you all next time. Take care.